is not scroll through social media. It's going to be saying my declaration again. I'm going to start my day and end my day with who I am, Mm -hmm. who I create me to be. Because the only reason I am who I am now is because of experiences of my life that nobody helped me clean up. Well, as soon as you realize that you have power over that, it's up to you. Greetings, my friends. Welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We are recording live under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. My mission with this podcast and company is to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you're in the right place. And today we're going to continue that tradition with a gentleman by the name of A.J. Richards. Now, A.J. has made it clear he's not here to promote anything, uh, but most of you guys will know him from the Rush Club events that he promoted for so many years, as well as his gym ownership experience. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his background and journey, all the way from his upbringing into those experiences and now working with the Powells and the Transform app. And we're probably going to break this up into two episodes. First part will be the journey. And the last part, we're talking a little bit about the plant medicine and some deeper internal type stuff. So Get ready for that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome AJ onto the podcast. Hey, man, I appreciate you coming up today. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure, man. You've been someone that uh, I've actually kind of looked to for a long time. You know, I started following you back in the Rush Club days. Um, you know, back when I was doing some stuff with Scott Porter, mm-hmm. and you hit my radar then, and I've just kind of followed your journey. Yeah, and uh, dude. Jumping in with you today, I would really like to get the rest of the story. <laughs> okay. You know, so I, I know people know the public version of you. Sure. But I know there's a whole lot of depth there that we've never even scratched. You and I think we yeah. had one other conversation about doing some personal development work, I think around Landmark at one point. That was years ago. Yeah, at Cafe Rio down the road. Yeah, 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 I yeah. remember so, that. Yeah. It's been a while, brother. So um, so let's jump in on you, man. Okay. So let's get your story. Where are you originally from? You're not from the Valley. Nope. Originally, I'm from a small town, St. George, Utah. Was small when I grew up. It's probably sitting around 300,000 now. So small guest small where you're from. Yeah. yeah. Uh, St. George is about two hours from Las Vegas mm-hmm. um, and four hours from, it's bottom uh, southwest tip of Utah, bottom southwest corner. And it's like really right there on the border of, of um, Arizona and Nevada. So St. George, Utah. It's beautiful. That's where people go when they go to Zion's or Bryce Canyon that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's gorgeous up in that area. Mm-hmm. Is that where you spent all your formative years? Like yes. you, like your school years, yeah. everything, all like, all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I didn't move out. We didn't leave there until 2008. I mean, I'd left for military and stuff like that, but, mm-hmm. but, um, all of my younger years were there. My family were, my cousins were my friends. Um, you know, it was a town at the time where my mom would tell me we could walk to grandma's house and she was literally five miles away and through town and we would just walk, you know, at, at six, seven years old. And, um, yeah, but my family was my, was who I was with. And as I grew up, you know, so my family's huge, a yeah. uh, thousand people show up to our reunion every year. <laughs> no, really? there's no joke. Yeah. Literally mm-hmm. a thousand. Yeah. People. Literally over a thousand now. I mean, dude, how's that even growing. possible? Um, well, each family member back then had 15 kids each. <laughs> <laughs> so my family actually settled the North, side of the Grand Canyon, they were off. This was the government made homesteading available in 1916. Really? It was like one of the last times they made homesteading a thing. And a bunch of my family took it on and they went to the North side of the Grand Canyon. It's known as the Arizona strip. Mm-hmm. And, um, they made it work. I mean, 2016 was the centennial celebration. And we took these van rides from homestead to homestead and the eldest living member of that family would share what they, what, you know, what that particular family was like, all relatives, but, um, it was incredible what they could do back then. I mean, we look at that, our ranch now, and it looks like it's, you you couldn't grow anything. And yet we see old photos with crops as far as you can see, they fail. They managed to cultivate the land in a desert, in a high desert to where it gave them potatoes and corn and, and, um, I think they were growing cotton for their own clothes. I mean, it was crazy what they could do when we look at it and we take it for granted. Wow. So it, were they pretty much self-sustaining at that oh point? Oh, yeah. I mean, at, that seems kind of an mm-hmm. isolated area. Yeah, they're middle of nowhere. I mean, it was two. It was a, a whole day or two days ride, mm-hmm. literally on horseback or, or I mean, this, we're talking 1916. 
okay. and we're talking poor people in the middle of the of the of nowhere, right? So we're sure. well, this is little house on the prairie era, <laughs> and um, but they made it work. Now it's just the we call it the ranch, going to the ranch, and it's um, Bundyville. So I'm related to Bundys. If you've heard the Bundy militia, that's yes. my cousin. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Ammon Bundy's a, a cousin of mine, second wow. cousin. Wow. How did that eventually play out? That was some crazy stuff. Um, they I, were right. They got acquitted on all charges. The attorney said. The federal government has made this investigation so corrupt, the plaintiffs, which was the representation of the government, Mm -hmm. you have corrupted the investigation so much, it is impossible for me to get to the bottom of anything. So they let everything go. And now um, Lavoy Finicum, who was shot, his, his wife's going after them for you know, what they did. Yeah. So maybe we should give the folks some background that, that don't know what that's all sure. about, but this mm-hmm. was um, basically kind of like a government land grab, wasn't it? At one point. Yeah. Yeah. So you, without getting too much into conspiracy, primarily because I don't have enough personal information to back it up. Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, you know, the way it's set up in the constitution is the states are responsible for their own land and the Bureau of Land Management was only intended to manage the Western lands until they were settled. And but that's once, a federal organization. That's a federal organization right. and um, Department of the Interior. And, you know, once somebody has power, what they don't want to do is give it up. So if you look at the amount of private, uh, the amount of land owned by the government in the West, it's almost all of it. It's crazy. 90% of Utah is owned by the BLM, you know, the same amount for like, you know, and these are numbers I'm just kind of making up, but it's a lot. If you mm-hmm. do the research, you'll find out it's a lot. So anyway, there's all kinds of conspiracies around why, you know, there was talk that um, one of the politicians was trying to shut the land down and then sell it to China for solar farms. And there's some evidence that that could have been it. I mean, either way, it got real bad. And what's unfortunate is, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a first responder. I'm a huge fan of a first, I'm not a first responder anymore, but I'm a huge fan of all that. And kind of for me, what that showed was, do you know the orders you're given and are they legitimate? Because, you know, a lot of my friends that are officers, they are, their only job is to, um, defend the laws that are voted in. You know, they don't care if somebody's smoking weed or doing whatever, but it's their job because it's a law voted in by the people. Right. And so they just show up and do the law. Well, what happens when you work for a government that's going to tell you to do something that isn't totally clear because all you're doing is followed orders that are handed down. And that's the unfortunate side. Cause I look at all those guys in uniform and I, I would stand by them. And I also see the other side of it too, having been a part of a family that was completely targeted out of false accusations. And, um, so essentially what, what I understand happened is my uncle would pay for his grazing rights. They, they never claimed they own the land, but they owned the rights to graze on it. That's as that's as valuable as owning the land. Sure. If if somebody owned the piece of property but you sold the rights to graze, it's theirs until that expires, right? Now, is that a purchase that he made from the feds? Yes. Or, okay. Not him. His family clear back in the 1800s, that okay. late 1800s. It's been in their family. And that and goes it, into perpetuity? Into perpetuity. Okay. And so he would pay for the rights because you have to pay uh, annually or whatever. I don't know the details on that, but he would have to pay to keep those rights. Mm. And he would. And then he started noticing or realizing that what he was paying to the Bureau of Land Management to have those rights, that money was then being put into things like the Sierra Club and other Mm. organizations that didn't want them there. Even though if you look at what they did for the land, they, they, they developed water sources in the desert for wildlife that was not having what, I mean, the wildlife population grew because they had access to water because it was in their interest to keep their cattle water. I mean, all of these things, they benefited the land. Nobody work, nobody, um, cares for land more than people who live off of it. 100%. Bottom line, bottom line, or the animals that are on there, you know, um, hunters care more for the deer and the elk and the bears and all the populations of those animals more than people who just like to look at the pictures because they understand the impact that those they have on their lives. Sometimes it's their direct food source. Um, Most of the time they just have this healthy understanding of where our food comes from versus just buying a package in the store and going home with it, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, they paid these grazing fees for a long time. 
recognized that those were being funded to help put them out of business. And so they had to make a stand at some point. And so he stopped paying the federal government and started sending the checks to the state because originally that's who has the right over these properties, right? And look, you can go way deep in this. So I'll probably stop right about here because I don't know enough <laughs> about it. But both sides can argue so much about it. And essentially, they won. They were wrongfully imprisoned. They were political prisoners, literally, for two years. My cousin Ammon and his brothers. Mm-hmm. Two years and the others that were part of that. Political prisoners. Like, it actually happens. It isn't just a Kiefer Sutherland TV show. Dude, it was amazing to watch this thing unfold. And I was mm-hmm. following it closely. This was back in my heavy politics days, right? Oh, was like, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 2014 was yeah, when yeah. it went down. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. I was about, uh, you know, I was deep, deep into the libertarian philosophy at that mm-hmm. point, And that's all I would talk about, right? And sure. so I was following this really closely. And I didn't realize that you were so connected to it until I think you made a post yeah. about it. And I followed it even closer then because then I knew someone who knew someone, yes. right? I was connected at that yeah. point. And I remembered when it came to like showdown time like, mm-hmm. like, under the bridge. Yeah. Like the guns cowboys under the on the horses and the bureau, the um, federal government drawn down with AR 15s and sniper rifles. Dude, that was crazy in our country. Right. Like it was absolutely what? insane. Yeah. It's like a Waco. I'm like, Oh, you know, for me watching, I was so afraid for my family and everybody mm-hmm. there. Cause fortunately it was in so much public eye. It wouldn't have gone, you know, unless somebody did something dumb, it wouldn't have gone there. But Those when you're things, in the middle of nowhere, that's right. That's when that happens. That's right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's funny because those things seldom end well. Right. You know, look at Ruby Ridge. Look at any of them. Right. That's right. Any yeah. of these different things. Mm-hmm. It's some silly little thing that kicks off a chain reaction, and people just get mowed down. Right. And that was what I was thinking was going to happen when I saw all those guys. Yeah. Basically, you had two lines of people like standing off, literally dudes on horseback, cowboys ready to shoot. And you have the feds on the other side. It was cool, though, because they were outnumbered. Yeah. The feds were. Yeah. Which was nice to see. Yeah. It's been interesting to see and watching some of the things that have unfolded legally from even just from that moment. Mm-hmm. Everything's just being unpacked now. And, uh, you know, I, I was defending him then and I was told I was crazy. And now even the government that tried to put him away said, this is, there's something really wrong here. Yeah. So, yeah. That Lavoy Finnicum shooting, man, that was really so terrible. Sad. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I couldn't even believe it. And, and there's video of that. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just so sad. There's a documentary out too about specifically for Lavoy. Oh, I haven't really? seen it yet. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah. Wow. So when you were coming up in all this, mm-hmm. right. And, uh, or not, I guess not in all yeah, this right. specifically, but you grew up on the land, you grew mm-hmm. up on a ranch, that yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What sort of family life did you come up with? Were you yeah. guys like super close knit or did you just kind of take it all for granted at that point? Yeah, no, it, it, they were my family, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, they were my world. And so I was raised LDS in St. George, Utah, and, um, I'm the oldest of five boys. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but yeah, the family life, you know, my cousins were, were just, that would, those were my friends. Right. And so, uh, leaving the first time in the military was my first opportunity to, to have to develop as a, as a man outside of my comfort zone. Right. And that's kind of led to some things I've been researching myself and being present to is the rite of passage. You know, women's rite of passage is biological. Mm-hmm. They hit a certain age and you know, they're a woman, young men, that doesn't exist. And throughout history, since the beginning of time, the father would teach the son the skills necessary to survive on his own, to be a man. And then the trusted members of that society would deliver the um, test. And every culture, you could do the research, every culture is going to have some test that that's what was the requirement. You know, Australia, they had the walkabout. You would go and discover yourself and learn to survive and so forth. Uh, there's, There's things like that all over the place. Well, we're starting to lose that. Mm -hmm. And I see a very clear difference between my brother and I that served in the military and my other brothers that didn't, their discovery process is longer or harder. Um, they're doing They're My brothers are amazing and there's just a difference. So do you view your military service as your crucible? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and, um, it was, it's always ongoing always ongoing, but that was definitely the opportunity because when I first showed up the mill in basic training, you know, I was my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. I had a picture of her in the locker and 
some guy walks up and goes, that's your hoe. And I was ready to beat him. I was just like, what is that my hoe? What? And he goes, yeah, is that your bitch? And I was like, what? Like he kept going and I was getting more and more mad. Like, I can't believe you're talking about my wife that way or my girlfriend that way. And for him, that's the culture. Sure. You know, this guy was from Brooklyn Sure. and right, wrong or indifferent. I happen to think it's wrong to speak to women that way or anybody that way. But for him, that's where he came from. So what I had to learn was, oh, I lived in a bubble, small town, St. George, Utah, only hung out with my cousins and everybody believed the same thing. Mm-hmm. There was no self-discovery. Mm-hmm. You just, you just did, you know, you did as you saw your cousins do and you did as your grandma said and your aunts, you like, there was no like, oh, people think way different than I do, you know? And so that was required. And that was 18, 18 before I started getting that, yeah. you know, kids that grow up in the city, they have to develop way faster. Totally. So, so when you, when you think back on that experience mm-hmm. and that one specifically, right? Like you're obviously looking at the situation from two very different lenses. Yeah. What was it like for you to process that in terms of like, you know, I'm sure you had, you had a lot of judgment toward this person who was yep. in your mind, probably insulting your wife. Yeah. And he definitely in the, my mind, he definitely was. And I started getting pissed off and, and my, my, uh, battle buddies in my room, cause this guy came in from a different room. They had to break us up. Like it was getting heated. And then one of them kind of said, Hey, you know, and kind of talked me through like, Hey, this is like, not, I get where you're from, but that he didn't mean anything by it. And I'm like, really? So that when I calmed down, I was able to listen to what they were sharing with me. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then, you know, then it's almost like, well, now he also respected my wishes and never referred to it again. And we kind of shook it off and we were good to go, but it was just definitely like, Oh, okay. So then I, then I started taking things way less personal and was willing to inquire or discover first. Just after that one interaction. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool, man. It was interesting because by the time we got midway through basic training, I would have guys wake me up at midnight for advice. Really? Yeah. And I was like, I didn't know that about myself. Like, this is really strange. People are seeking me out for, you know, clearing the space for whatever they were stuck with. And so we, they'd wake me up. We'd go sit on the washers and dryers in the, in the latrines and I'd help them with whatever it was. And then we'd go back to bed and I just kind of, it happened quite regularly through that time. That's amazing, dude. So what was it you think that was about you specifically that they decided to confide in you? Those, I mm-hmm. guess these were probably deeper conversations at this point. Yeah. And you know, and I'm 18 and honestly, I'm still looking for that. Mm. Yeah. I'm still searching for that. I am, I am now aware that I've been, I'm now aware that I have a gift and to what extent I can grow that that's where I'm seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I do for a living now is a clear sign that that's the case. Um, I didn't, I didn't um, respect it at 18. So I think I lost it for a little while because after I got out and life happened, I didn't fully understand the impact, but as I'm coming back into it and have been for the last you know few years, and I look back on that, I was like, okay, there's something that's always been there, my own unique genius. What is that and how can I develop that? Right, right. Yeah. Do you think it had to do with how you were raised though? Like coming up with, obviously on a ranch, I'm sure you had quite a bit of responsibility. Yeah. You were dealing with probably a little bit more than most people would at, at a younger age. You think yeah. that impacted you at all? That's a good question. So I was the city slicker of the family. My dad was not a rancher. And so when we got to go to the ranch, we went often, but it was always with our cousins, right? So we weren't, I wasn't the rancher. Gotcha. I grew up with ranchers. And there was certainly, there's certainly a story there about being the city slicker, you know, but I'm over it now. But as a kid, I used to bother me. Um, You know, that's a good question. I think that it's not necessarily that particular family. It's both families, my mom's side and my dad's side as a whole. and, And a lot of it is what I got from both of my parents in terms of their, um, how they showed up for me. And then, uh, but I, I really do believe some of it is definitely just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from a divine. How different are you from your brothers? Uh, that's a good question. There's one of them that I'm a lot alike. Mm. I have a lot in common with, a, with all of them, but one of them, is a lot, he and I are a lot more like, he's the one that I was with, um, in that business recently that I was telling you about earlier. Are the, you the and he business. in similar age? Did you come up near the no. same time? No, no, he's 27, maybe we're six years apart. Okay. Yeah. That's cool, man. No, he's 
man, he might be approaching 30. <laughs> He's getting old. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're about six years apart. And, and so that was different because, um, you know, when my, my parents divorced it at, when I was 18 mm-hmm. and so he's still really young. And so me and my older brother, we were out of the house. So it's really interesting to have a, have a family, like to kind of unpack that yeah, and see how different our lives are because I was old enough to be out of the house during the, when the divorce happened and he was still a kid and the impact that that had on him. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and it was just purely the maturity level. Cause we have the same parents. We have the same experience of the parents. We weren't abused. We had a great family, but having the split household at that age versus my age, there's a very clear difference in the, the remaining of those teen, those teenage years for him versus for me. Hmm, what do you see as the primary difference based on that particular observation? Um, when I, when my dad said they were getting divorced, I said, good, it's about time. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. And he goes, what? And I said, well, it's never been a good place to be. You guys have never really loved each other. That's clear. Whereas that's not, pro- you can't process that when you're, you know, 10, 11. Sure. That's a much more difficult conversation to really think about. And so it was more personal, I think, for him. Mm, so you had less attachment, basically, is what I'm yeah. hearing. Yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an adult. I'm in the military. I've right. got my girlfriend. I'm ready to leave the house. Um, my relationship with my parents was tumultuous, tumultuous mm-hmm. by, by my choices. I moved out when I was 16, lived out of the back of my truck. Would, I would hang out with my wife all day, sneak out of her, or leave her house and then crawl in the back seat of her car and sleep. <laughs> like that was, dude, that was me. Cause, uh, I developed this, um, strong suit. I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way from an mm-hmm. experience when I was a kid. Sure. And I didn't recognize that until years later when I did Landmark, Mm -hmm. but it showed up when I unpacked, I was like, dang, like I moved out at 16. My parents were great. They didn't have any issues Mm -hmm. except I couldn't see, you know, past my own blind spots. Sure. And then I got married and I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. doesn't work there either. You know, so just more self-awareness and, um, yeah, by that age I was just like, I'm good. So if I'm being nosy, man, I have to ask, Please. what was this experience that you feel like shaped you so greatly? Um, in, in uh, what way? In terms of, um, you or, know, how you, how you said that you showed up and you developed this sort of independent streak. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's totally fine. So when I was five years old, I got ran over. Oh shit. Yeah. I was five years old. I got ran over by <laughs> now my uncle. We were, <laughs> we were delivering. Someone, he, you know, of course. He, yeah. We were delivering his wedding invitations to my aunt okay. when he ran me over. And it wasn't his fault, but I'm just thinking to be that guy and run over one of your soon to be nephews, poor uncle Tracy, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so so we're talking full on, like I was sitting on the bed of the truck and I fell off the side and Mm. ended up under the back tire somehow. And I watched it roll over my body. And I remember hearing a voice in my head telling me to turn my head. And I turned my head right when the tire ran over my shoulder. Wow. Yeah. And not, I was five years old, skinny as a bean pole, not a single broken bone. And it ran over my guts and over my arm and not one broken bone. They were worried about internal bleeding. There was nothing there. Lots of road rash, but that was it. Mm -hmm. But I remember being in bed, in the hospital bed, and super afraid and in a lot of pain, and my parents weren't there. And so I had a moment of, I'm alone. I'm going to have to do this on my own, so I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. My parents, in reality, they were there within like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. St. George wasn't a huge town, so as soon as somebody got a hold of them, they were there. But through that little window of space to survive this traumatic experience, I had to create a meaning. That's what our brains do. Right. But because I was unchecked on that and what it meant, the next time it showed up, I collected evidence for it. So now I'm eight years old walking down the dirt road at my ranch with two older cousins thinking like I'm the cool kid. Cause I'm eight They're you know, 12, 13, whatever, feeling cool. They turn around, start throwing rocks at me, tell me to go home. Well, traumatic experience as an eight-year-old. I've got to make it mean something or I'm going to look like a crybaby. And in my family, cowboys don't cry. I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. Mm-hmm. And then it was just, you know, you could just follow it all the way through. Then I'm 16 and my parents tell me to be home when the streetlights come on. I don't need you. I'm going to do my way. And then I'm dating and I get married and we're trying to decide where we're going to eat or what we're going to watch and stupid stuff like that. But having no control over this mm-hmm. background machine running my actions, I would argue over what we would eat or where we'd watch or anything, you know, and it's just, and then you get clarity on it and you're like, Oh, 
and then you appreciate it for what you learned. Yeah, that's super interesting, man. It's amazing that you, uh, or I should say that us in general as yeah. humans, when we come upon that awareness, a lot of times it's so many years away from the thing. And we realize, dude, we've been sleepwalking all this time, just yeah. kind of operating on autopilot. Yeah. When you, when you went through the landmark experience and you had that awakening, was that sort of your acknowledgement at that point? You're just like, Oh yeah. shit. Yeah, definitely landmark. That's where I was like, Oh, and then, um, Let's see. There was even one example. Oh, just the power of the mind and what Mm -hmm. it will do for us or Mm -hmm. against us. Right. So newlywed go on a deployment two weeks after I got married and I'm in, uh, uh, let's see, where was I the first time I'm in Colorado? No, I'm in Fort Lewis, Washington. And I get the opportunity to go home for a, for leave. Right. And I'd been gone for four months. So in my head, I'm going to be swinging from the sandaliers. Like, dude, <laughs> I'm a newlywed. I've been gone for four months. Like, I'm right, not right. leaving the bedroom. <laughs> well, something that newlyweds that are definitely disconnected with how you think and all that process, the thing that they don't know how to do is to communicate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went home with these uncommunicated expectations. And I don't even know if that age, with how new we were together, if that would have even worked to have that conversation, but I went home with these undelivered communications. It was not earth shattering. We did not definitely spend that whole time in the bedroom. So I went back with this story that it was so disappointing, this reunion that, um, you know, what we do as humans, sometimes we start telling a story enough that we want the buy-in from others. Mm -hmm. Because if I share with you, dude, man, I went home and she didn't even touch me. No matter what I'm the, I'm, you're on my side, right? I'm not the bad guy. Right. And I didn't learn how impactful that was and how many other areas we do that to ourselves. And so what it created was this space between me and my wife for a, you know, more than a decade because I held on to that story. And so then every time I wasn't fulfilled, I would retell myself that story to the point where just angry, always angry. And we couldn't get through it. And then I have this landmark thing and I went home night one and I said, Hey, do you remember how, <laughs> do you remember how I said that you didn't even touch me when I came home on leave? And she goes, yeah. And I don't know why you keep saying that. Don't you remember the condo and the wine, which by the way, the wine was a big thing because we were raised Mormon. So right. I should have remembered that, but <laughs> you know, we were drinking and stuff like that. And, and, and she's like, we had sex like a couple of times. Right. And I was like, and then all of a sudden that story that I'd told myself so many times cleared up mm-hmm. and I was like, what an asshole. Yeah. But it was so freeing to be, comp- to, to see for myself. And then what's left to do is to try to complete it with the people you've wronged mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. own it. Yeah, that's true. It's amazing that you went down those examples because I feel like a lot of times we operate unconsciously knowing or not knowing that whatever we believe we're going to make real in our lives. We're going to find a way to act it out. We're going to find a way to shade it or foreshadow it. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is breaking free from that. Yeah. You know, so how does someone take a look at that story? How does someone gain awareness and then take that step to breaking free? I think it has to be intentional, definitely. And you have to be seeking it mm-hmm. and be willing to not be right. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing. If you, The hardest part, I think, in the beginning is... You only know what you know. And when you start going down the road of these sort of conversations, you have to be willing to be wrong and not have it mean that you're bad, but just I made a wrong choice. That doesn't say that I'm a bad person, but so you, you're, you're willing to be wrong and then you're willing to go and do the work to clean it up with those that you were wrong with. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't say wrong in a way that makes you a bad person, but th- that it doesn't work here. Right. It's not right or wrong. It's right. Is it effective or not effective? Yeah. Or is, no does judgment. it work or does it not work? Right. In my relationship with my wife, holding on to that doesn't work. <laughs> no, that's not going to work. <laughs> no, <laughs> doesn't take much to see that. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Once, and I was even shown that. That's yeah. right. And I was totally blind to it. And so that's why when it was like, oh, duh. And that's usually what breakthroughs are. Mm-hmm. Oh, duh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being raised LDS. Yeah. Are you still practicing? No, not at all. Um, I don't consider myself a part of the church at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I love and honor every one of them mm-hmm. and appreciate what they, what I did learn in, in that organization, but it's not something I subscribe to at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious of, of your take since you were mm-hmm. raised in, in that particular church. It seems like it it's fairly exclusive in a lot of ways. I mm-hmm. know of, of, of several people who weren't able to see their children get married because they weren't part of the religion, that yeah. sort of thing. Is yeah. It, has that been your experience or is that just hyperbole? Well, it's definitely the experience, but I think the context is wrong, right? Okay. From somebody who may not fully understand. So it's it's just like this. Every private organization should have the right to dictate the rules of the organization. Sure. And so if somebody who couldn't see their family member get married, that's got nothing to do with the organization. Those rules are set. It's that person chose to get married in that context. Oh. So then therefore they're not allowed to go in because it has rules. I love that you framed it that way. I mean, let's, let's dive down this rabbit hole. Sure. So let's talk a little about choice. So when, when you choose into a game, like mm-hmm. if I'm choosing into the LDS game, yeah. then I'm choosing in with all that comes with that. That's right. Just like if I'm playing Monopoly or Scrabble. Yeah. So doesn't give me the right as an outsider looking in to force my viewpoint on you and say, hey, change right. for me. Right. And, and I think that's the problem with what we're seeing in the world today. A lot of is that people are wanting to be a part of something, but they don't want to play by the rules. Right. And so because you won't let me in and you won't let me do it my way, I'm going to make you wrong. And I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs and either get your business shut down or get, you know, whatever you name it. But that's what we're seeing. Whereas go find a different game to play. If you don't want to play those rules, you know, it, I left because I didn't want to play by the rules, mm-hmm. not because I didn't think what they taught were, was valuable in some way. It's, I didn't believe in the word of wisdom, which is no alcohol, no smoking and stuff like that. I, I felt like, you know, that, 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 um, all things in moderation still exist in those areas. Um, I didn't believe in some of the, um, um, sort of structures of the faith in terms of, you know, going into the temple and, um, just things that went along with that, that I just was like, you know, great for you. I don't, agree with it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to freely and lovingly allow you to keep practicing what you do. And you're welcome to share with me and I'll listen from a space of interest and inquiry. And I'm not interested. For sure. For sure. Nothing about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's amazing that we've come to a point where some people feel like they have this innate, I guess, God given right to just force the way they think and act onto someone else. And that's never the case. Mm -mm. It's turned in from, you know, it used to be religious types, if you want to use air quotes around that, that would do that sort of thing. But now it's more along the lines of identity politics. Like you have Mm -hmm. to think the way I think you have to raise your child the way I think you should raise your child, you know, expose them to things that I think they should be exposed to, whether or not you agree or not. Yeah. And it seems as though we've lost the ability to act as individuals in a way. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that most of those people or organizations it came, what's funny is it came from somebody doing it to them first. Isn't that weird? Right. And so now they don't see it, but they're perpetuating that on the next organization because they're angry that somebody did it to them. Right. Well, what's the whole point of that? Like you're just (laughs) adding to the problem. Like, isn't it about giving people space? And if they're not hurting me or the environment I need to live in or somebody else that Mm -hmm. I need to step in, that they're free to do whatever they choose. Yeah, this never made sense to me. And and when I was doing this whole political thing back in the day, Mm -hmm. the phrase that would always come to mind was be careful that you don't become the thing that you hate. Yeah, just like that. Yeah, perfect way to put it. That's exactly what I saw. You know, I saw people spewing things that they wouldn't have people do to them. They wouldn't accept it. But here they are spewing, telling other people how to live. And to me, that makes no sense. Right. Which is why I couldn't, I could never support either of the political parties. And I was going down my libertarian bent. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure that you, uh, <laughs> I'm sure that you kind of, kind of see where I'm going with that. I do. Yep. But at the end of the day, so, um, you know, coming outside the church, that mm-hmm. had to be a difficult decision. Very. Not only for you, but you have a wife at this point, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so what kind of baggage were you guys dealing with in terms of making that sort of, I don't want to use the word escape, but yeah, well, it's probably pretty <laughs> accurate, but, um, for, I'm, I'm blessed that my wife and I were on the same path at the same time. Okay. If she wasn't ready <clears throat> and I was ready in you know, I, I want to say especially, but I know there are other religious contexts out there that it's like that, mm-hmm. but I'll say it, especially in this particular faith, um, to leave is like a big deal. And so if I was trying to leave and my wife wasn't, I don't know that we would have made it as a couple. Um, 
And so I am very grateful that she was in a space where she was inquiring for herself as well. Well, um, my intermediate family, they've been nothing but loving and supportive. You know, my dad still hopes the prodigal son will return and he doesn't, he doesn't, my dad just always, uh, um, in make sure that he knows I love, he loves me no matter what. Mm-hmm. So my, my relationship with my parents is phenomenal. My, my mom, she's, um, totally complete with it. You know, she's kind of, <laughs> my mom doesn't necessarily follow all the rules and because of her how she was raised and her family, like her, my mom is primarily the people we hung around, right? Mm-hmm. She has 10, nine brothers and sisters wow. and my grandmother, my cousins. So in just since my grandma, there are 260 members of our family. <laughs> That's for my grandma. You guys down. are a small town. Yeah. yeah, totally. That's my grandma down. And so, um, it's like I was telling you earlier, that's how you end up with a thousand people at your family reunion. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I but, get it now. Yeah. So anyway, but even to this day, we are the black sheep. Your family or you specifically? Me and my family. I mean, well, me and my five brothers because none of us. So because I didn't go on a mission, okay. none of my younger brothers went on a mission. And that looks very bad on me as the example setter. And so if it mattered to me, I would be carrying this burden, but it doesn't matter because I'm complete with it. Right. They're humans. They make their own choices. Sure. Whether I do or not, you know, but, uh, when I owned the CrossFit gym, they became my family. I, I heard more from, you know, to this day, I probably haven't heard once from any of my family members about anything I've done other than why did I leave the church? Really? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. surprising. And so they just, I love them and I'm complete with them and I know they love me and they just don't know how to see beyond their own, like, like me when I grew, grew up, unless I would have went to Landmark, I would have never seen through that, that, um, filter of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I get it. Therefore I can be complete with it and not have it mean like, I hate you guys. Like, you know, whatever. Um, do I spend time with them? No, but why would I, I know what to expect when I go there. It's not because I'm avoiding them. It's because I know that there's no, there's no growth that's going to happen in that environment. And what I've certainly learned over my years and all of my failures is my time is my most, most valuable asset and I can choose where it goes. No title has uh, control over where I choose my time. And what I mean by that is Mom, dad, grandma, aunt, uncle, titles, they have no bearing. It's still, my dad's name is Jody. My mom's name is April. I give them the love of my parents, but, you know, I have friends like Bruce Pitcher. He was on Extreme Makeover. I, I work with Chris and Heidi Powell now, and so I'm going to share this as an example. Bruce Pitcher's dad molested him and 20 other boys when he was a kid. If the title of father was so finite, how would you ever complete that past. But when you can give that person a name and realize Mm -hmm. they're just people, they don't know what they're up to until they do or whatever. There's this separation of like, I cannot believe that my parents did that to me. I'm referring to me or my aunts and like that doesn't even have any bearing because it's, you know, whatever relationships there, it's the person and the person doesn't know what they're doing. Right. So I've, I've learned to separate the relationship. Um, now I am a father of three girls. I haven't been able to separate that late. Really, you know, they're my girls, they're my babies. So that'll come down the road, I think. But uh, I think obviously, if I keep going with this in this context, then they'll they'll be okay. For sure, that's so. really interesting that you bring that up. I I had a conversation. I've actually had this conversation with several people mm-hmm. about the importance of relatives and relationships mm-hmm. because I'm asked all the time, you know, how difficult. Has it been to change your circle, to change, you know, when you went through your change, Jason, you know, how was it for you to suddenly say to all these friends that you had that, you know, we're not really going to be hanging out that much anymore. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell them, you know, it wasn't really those people. It was my family. Yeah. Because they were the ones who weren't really supportive. They weren't the ones who were not really interested in what I had to do. They were the ones who never gave me a phone call, you know, and I'm 2000 miles away and could use Mm -hmm. the support. Right. And so to hear someone else you know, expound upon that is, is comforting for me. Yeah. Uh, there's hope in the world <laughs> yeah. for, for separating relationship from the person, which is very, very key. Right. And, and then I think it does a service for them. hundred percent. It gives them the grace to not be perfect. Mm-hmm. Cause if it's my dad, I would expect perfect perfection, right? right. Father 
implies perfection. And I don't expect that of him. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'll support him. And I do my parents, when I was in the military and boot camp, they would end up asking me for marriage advice. It was mm. so strange. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why am I in this position? I'm 18 <laughs> and, my, and this is before they divorced. Right. And I'm like, they're asking me for advice. I'm not even married. But, um, now I'm certainly clear on, I just, I love my, I, I call him my dad. I love him. I love my dad. And Jody is trying to work his way through his own life. Mm-hmm. You know, I love my mom and April is working her way through her own life. So I give them, they now have this freedom to not be perfect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I had a similar path. I, for me, it was about seeing my parents as, um, shapeable children, mm. you know, and realizing that they did the best that they could with the tools that they had. You know, yeah. they, they weren't exposed to podcasts and yeah. the internet right. and personal development. I mean, we were rural Georgia out in the woods, yep. you know, hunting and fishing and, mm-hmm. and raising crops, yes. you know, and two kids come from abused households and get together and marry at 18. Yeah. What is the effect going to be? Well, probably not as positive as it could be. Yeah. But realizing that they're just people, like you said, right, right. that they have a story mm-hmm. and that they were shaped by that. Hey, you know what? I get it. My heart yeah. goes out to them. And like you said, man, I have nothing but love for them. Yeah. You know, I'll share this with you. So my dad, all growing up, my dad was the one up you dad. And mm. so this was before I knew the separation. Right. So I would say, you know, I would be happy if I got a D minus in any class. Like I dropped out in senior year, but I would be happy to have a D minus in any class because school is not my thing. Well, my dad would be or I would run a certain speed in track or jump a hike because I did the high jump and that kind of stuff. Anytime I would tell my dad anything, well, I never got less than this in that class. Well, I always ran this speed. Well, I always jumped it. It didn't matter. It always felt like no matter what I told him, he did better. And so it was like, why would I share anything? with? Like, you're supposed to be like, good job, son. And while I do believe he actually said that, what stuck with me was that, right? So Mm being responsible for my own listening as a child. I'm sure my dad gave me the accolades, but what I heard was he always did it a little better. And so my dad did the forum with my stepmom a couple years ago. So it opened the space for me to have a conversation and be heard in a way that was empowering, not blaming, right? Because if you don't know how to hear it, and I say, dad, you're always the one up you dad, that's going to be a problem. But when your dad's in a space of listening to understand mm-hmm. it's a different conversation. And so what I understood, what I discovered about my dad was, first of all, he had no idea. He's like, really? And that like, he came across that way. Yeah. yeah. He's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. Well, what I learned about my dad is my grandma always told my dad, don't do that, Jody. You're not smart enough. Mm. And she probably got that from her parents in some way. So my dad spent his entire life trying to prove he was good enough or smart enough And without knowing it, because he'd never had the opportunity for diving into the psyche, this happens, my brain makes it mean this, therefore I'm going to show up in the world like this, because he never had that opportunity, he's now still proving himself to his children. That's crazy. And then you have this awareness and it's like, oh, that's what it means to give somebody the space to be a human being and learn and grow and Mm -hmm. not pin them with a title. You know, it doesn't serve somebody to only hold them to that title. Mm-hmm. What was the impact you think that had on your life and your energy that you're putting in the world? Because I look, and obviously as I sit across from you, I mm-hmm. see a very energetic, very successful man, someone who's on his journey, yeah. regardless of past failures, you're on the journey, yeah. which is more than you can say for most people. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel like, you know, you reconcile those two? Because it doesn't seem like it harmed you, but maybe yeah. it did. Um, I think if you were to look at my earlier teenage years, it did harm me. (laughs) And, uh, I honestly, I, what I'm going to use the word saved and I use it, I use it carefully, Okay. but a gentleman by the name of Steve Hardison, Mm -hmm. the ultimate coach, if you want to check him out, Steve Hardison saved me. I know Steve. yeah. Yeah. So Steve Hardison became a member of my gym. So, um, God, Gaia, you, whatever you want to call that energy, the sacred energy that exists, that created this whole world, whatever your relationship is to that, he walked into my gym because of that, because I have work to do and I don't know what it is yet. I know I'm on the path, um, but 
he came into my life and when he came into the gym, he was so matter of fact about who he was and what he would, what he was going to accomplish there that I Googled him. (laughs) (laughs) It was weird. It was the first time I'd met somebody so sure of who they were ever in my life. Just complete. He like greeted you with the I am's. Yeah, almost pretty much. At one point he did share that with me, which was like, I'm like, what just happened? It's next level. Yeah. And so, um, so we were in my gym one day. I wanted to divorce my wife. I sat down with him on a bench and I said, listen, I can't stand this woman. This was 2014. This was a couple of months before the final rush, which was at um, the press room before we started weight classes, right? So no, it was 2013. No, yeah. 2013, we started, uh, the final rush was January of 2014. So it was right before that. And uh, I said, I can't stand her. And I said, I, I, I could put into, if I could plug her into a computer and program her exactly how I would want, I don't want anything to do with her. So clearly something is wrong with me because that doesn't make sense. And I was at least for whatever reason, aware enough, possibly because I'd already started communicating with him over time, over the last you know few weeks or whatever it had been. But I was aware that if I wasn't willing to accept her, if I could make her exactly what I wanted, then there's issues with me. And so I at least had enough awareness for that. And so I kind of sat down with him and and nobody else was at the gym. And I said, I told him that. And and I said, do you have any advice for me? I can't hire you. You know, I think at the time of this recording, he's 250,000 a year up front for a hundred (laughs) hours. Like he's that good. And it's worth every penny for those who are able to do that. But uh, I committed when I met him, whatever this guy tells me, I'm doing it. He could tell me to run down the street naked. He'll bail me out and there's something I'm going to learn. I'm going to do it, right? I gave him way more control than I probably should have when I first met him. But, um, and he would probably tell you the same thing. So anyway, uh, he said, go see the Landmark, go to Landmark Forum. Mm. Well, I had seen an introduction to the Landmark Forum a year earlier um, by a guy named Brian Maxwell, who's also been, a, been around the CrossFit community here in Phoenix for a while. Uh, and who introduced me to, to Chris Powell, who I now work for. It was crazy how life works. But anyway, um, so Brian had showed me, introduced it to me a, a year before. And I, you know, coming from the family I came from, I don't believe in that touchy-feely bullshit. Like, right. what? You can create the context of your own. What does that even mean? Like, that's dumb. Put your head down, work hard, deal with the hand God gave you. And that's how you get through life. That's how I pretty much was raised. Cowboys don't cry. Like, you're going to talk to somebody about your problems? That's the, you're, you're, a, you're a pussy at that point. You're you know weak. what I mean? Yeah. You're weak. That's what that means. And um, anyway, so he said, go to Landmark, go to Landmark 4. And I went, shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd already committed that whatever this guy tells me, I'm doing it right. And I went, and in my head, I went, oh, that thing. Crap, I'm going to have to go there. Yeah. And, uh, and I left. We went to my family's home in St. George for Christmas. Oh, so that's the timeline. It was before Christmas. We were in Christmas mm-hmm. and I texted him and I said, you said to do Landmark? And he said, yes. And I said, how can I do it? Because he said, you need to go to the very next one. And it was the weekend before the final rush. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Steve, can do you swear on your podcast? Go ahead, man. Um, be you. I don't. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't use that often, but I said, I said, Steve, that's the weekend before Landmark or before final rush. And he goes, yeah. And I said, I can't handle that sort of mind fuck do you know what rush club weekend is like for me? (laughs) And he goes, AJ, if you go, you'll have the best weekend you've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. So I registered. I went to the forum the weekend before the final rush. I remember almost every moment of the final rush this many years later, the impact it had on me, what I wanted it to do at the time we weren't weight classes. Cause who was I to challenge CrossFit's methodology of the games where it's the test of the fittest. You know, I'm just AJ. I have no right to question that. And wrapped up the final rush. And basically I was like, okay, watch this. And we started, the next one was August and we started weight classes. Mm-hmm. So I was able to start the process of completing the relationship with my wife, um, which we can talk about as well. Cause that failed. I'm still married, but the form didn't fix it. Um, <laughs> I could see more confidence in what I was creating and I didn't need anybody's permission. It was for me to fail or succeed at. 
and just all of these things started falling into place. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so give us a little context around Final Rush. A lot of people might not w- yeah. know what that was or is. Sure. Yeah. So Rush Club was this idea to put people head to head to do a competition um, and win a title. Um, in the early days, so I started it with forty dollars. I bought a roll of caution tape and construction lamps from Home Depot. And we turned off the lights at the cell gym and made it look like Fight Club. Fight Club meets CrossFit was the idea, right? Um, um, we call it the Fight Club of Fitness, and uh, it was cool. We didn't, we didn't, we just paired people up. We didn't really have a, a, a weight class or anything like that for the first year. And so in 2013, myself and Stacy Snyder, she was my, you know, she she was the glue to everything. Um, we did. 12 shows inside of that one year, uh, 11 shows. And the final rush was number 12. Um, so we just cranked them out. I mean, we were doing them all over the place and they were fun, but there was no real context to make it turn into anything that could be big. It was just hard to fault. No structure, right? Mm-hmm. Why are these two together? Why are these two together? Right. Um, and so then in 2000, after we did the final rush and the final rush originally, the reason it was called the final rush is because I wasn't good enough for the, for the attention it was getting. And it was a way for me to package it without quitting. Mm. So if I called it the final rush, I could just say we were just done. And then I left the forum and I was like, yeah, I'm not done. (laughs) I got a lot more to do. (laughs) And so, uh, so that was the final rush. We had all winners throughout the whole season. It was like a, so we ended up treating it like a tournament. So everybody through 2012 came back or 2013 came back for the final rush to be crowned the title of, of whatever. I don't remember how we did all that. It's confusing as I talk about it, but (laughs) we had people like Lauren Fisher. She competed. We can look that up. Yeah, we'll look yeah, up. look that up. Uh, we had people like Lauren Fisher competing. Um, she competed, and then we had our our special entertainment was um, Josh Bridges versus Camilla Blanc Bazinet, and they went head to head just for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, male versus female. It was Fran. Yeah, and um, it was awesome. It was f- so fun. So then in August we went weight divisions. So essentially, the entire vision was to create the UFC version of functional fitness. To the T, weight classes, championship title belts, promoting the athletes because they're promotable, and the the intentions were always to be the place that gave professionalism to this sport. Mm-hmm. Because we had 19 divisions by the time we were done. That means 19 people wow. had an opportunity to make this a real living, mm-hmm. um, including adaptive athletes, people missing arms above the elbow and below the elbow, above the knee and below the knee. And then wheelchairs. And these are people that when you watch, they do things that we can't with two arms and two legs. Yep. That's just what it was. They, they, they deserved a platform to be recognized as elite, not just like, Oh, good for them. They're working hard. They hate that. And they all told me this is the first place we've ever competed where we feel like legitimate athletes. Mm. Thank you. Mm. I think some of that was the hardest part to shut down. I mean, I don't think it was. And, um, so the intention was to create this environment where people could be professionals and, uh, and professionalize the sport. Well, a sport becomes professionalized when people can make it a living. Whereas in the CrossFit games, it was the first place and second place finisher. And nobody remembered who finished second and third in either division. And yet they beat out the entire world. Sure. There's a little bit of, I I had a little bit of issues with that. Right. Right. Because I felt these people deserved more. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was, weight classes, and um, we can go down that road further if you want. But Yeah, for sure. But so there's this key element of landmark yeah. that mm-hmm. you threw in there, right? So mm-hmm. at this point in time, you know, you called it Final Rush because it was going to be the last one. It was your chicken exit, if you will. That's right. That's right? exactly what it was. So here's your exit. It's presented to you. But oh, by the way, here's this landmark thing over here. What switch got flipped, man? What happened? Uh... I'm going to give away the secret, but you're not going to know it unless you go. <laughs> Life is empty and meaningless. And it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. Mm. In other words. That's a thinker. Yeah. So in other words, you can fail and it means nothing until you give it meaning. So if I fail, I succeeded at learning something to not do the next time. That's where I'm at, right? Because last year I lost everything. I lost my gym. I officially closed up Rush Club. Um I mean, I'm, I'm going through bankruptcy as we speak mm. and knowing that I had control, not control, but knowing I had this awareness that that wasn't finite, 
gave me the ability to step back and say, okay, who am I going through this? And what can I learn from it? So as I'm going through bankruptcy, I'm not, my head isn't down grinding through it. My head is up and I'm watching every available lesson coming from this experience so I can apply it to the next thing that comes my way. And I even had a conversation with myself. I was sitting in my office in my, so I have this shed in my backyard that's been turned into an office and I was sitting there and it was a a weekend. It was Saturday, Sunday. And I thought, this is where people get when they kill themselves. And, and I'm also thinking, I am so grateful that I am not a suicidal person because this would be it. I was just so clear, like, this is what it feels like. And, what was uh, going through your head at that point, though? What, what did you feel like you couldn't escape? Um, letting down my members. Mm. It had nothing to do with me. Right. It was every single face of every person in my gym. Mm. You know, I love them. They, like I said, they became my family. And they supported me through... <clears throat> I didn't know I was going to get emotional with you. <laughs> um, it's okay, brother. You know, they supported me through everything I was trying. And they were always there. And... For me, my gym, my gym was more than a gym of people. So when I got home from the military, that was my mission. I had a purpose. I was a warrior. And I came home and I was selling pest control door to door and getting the door slammed in my face. And I was like, dude, like, what the hell? Like I used to be a, 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 I'm a veteran, a combat warrior, and I'm selling pest control door to door. How, how low can I get? That has nothing to do with the profession. It had everything to do with my personal mindset. And I started at um, CrossFit Santan. That was my first CrossFit. No, no. My first CrossFit gym was when I was at Lackland Air Force Base. I went to uh, um, CrossFit uh, Lone Star CrossFit. Mm. That was my first introduction to, land, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, CrossFit. And what I realized that I've been actually trying to share with the world about PTSD that most of it's just a lack of connection and purpose. And so all of a sudden I'm in an environment where my dopamine is flowing again because the, the workouts were exciting, nerve wracking and exciting. So I have dopamine and adrenaline happening, mm-hmm. which when I left combat, there was no dopamine and adrenaline and it was full flow there. And then the serotonin was some 60 year old grandma saying, come on, you got this. Like that's my brothers in arms. That was the missing piece was, mm-hmm. and I, I personally think it's the three together. It's the cocktail of dopamine, adrenaline, and serotonin that gives somebody purpose when they've had, when you've been in a combat mm-hmm. environment for so long, when all of those things are just part of your um, exposure and you come home, there's nothing. So anyway, my community gave me purpose. And the last few weeks of being a gym owner, I would walk around during class and look at each person and, and I knew every person in my gym and I knew something about them aside from their being in the gym. It was my tribe. So, and I knew the impact that it had on them and my fear was letting them down. Mm. That's what hurt. So when I'm sitting there in the office, it was this deep sorrow of failing them. It's amazing to, uh, to hear you break that down because a lot of times people accuse or think that there's this idea that if someone is thinking suicidal thoughts or even commits suicide, that it's a very selfish act. Mm. But the thought process that you just went through for me was very outward focused. It was, it was unselfish. You were thinking about other people. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and that's, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And, and it was because of the sorrow that came from letting people down mm-hmm. that led me to the space of now again I'm I've never been a suicidal person so my PTSD wasn't PTSD it was just depression it was lack of purpose mm-hmm. and I'm I'm really clear on that and I know there are people that suffer severely from actual symptoms of PTSD and I still feel like the environment of dopamine adrenaline serotonin will help with that and then they can find purpose mm. because I I didn't know I wanted to own a gym. I didn't know I was going to do this thing called rush club until I had the mental clarity from that environment to let me start seeing possibility. But it was definitely the outward feeling of failure for others that brought me inside. And that's where it would have went if I had been somebody Mm. who struggled. 
Right. And so you've mentioned purpose a couple of times Mm -hmm. in in that discussion. So, um, you know, a lot of times when I'm looking around, just observing people, right, I see people sort of kind of, you know, just kind of sleepwalking through their day. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a glimmer of purpose in their lives. And then I talk to people and I find out really a lot of times there isn't. It's just, you know, you wake up in the morning, you do what you're programmed to do. You follow the programs in your head. You come home, you go to sleep, you do it all over again the next day. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like helping people find that purpose, because it's not just vets. It's not just, you know, people who've been put in combat situations or stressful situations, first responders, policemen, whatever. You know, a lot of people are experiencing that. How do you help someone see, you know what? Hey, you can do more with your life. You know, yeah. how do you help them see that they can have a purpose? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, one of my mentors shared with me a process of forgiving yourself and creating a new declaration mm. of who you are. Forgiving yourself for what? A lot of people say this. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, in this context, it's forgiving yourself for everything that you say bad about yourself. Okay. When that internal dialogue, when that voice is just running all day long, you're saying things about yourself. If you're late to work, I'm such an idiot. I should have set my alarm. If you didn't complete something, man, I'm not reliable. I never get this done on time. Or if you um, didn't eat the way you were supposed to eat that day, man, I'm just, I'm just not good enough for this. Whatever it is, any t- all day long, we do things. We let ourselves down all day long, all day long, all day long. That's because like Jock, like uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza says, the moment you open your eyes, 95% of what you're thinking happened yesterday. And so until you do things to start transforming that, it's going to keep being that way. And so the process that I learned was uh, the first step is you write a list of every single thing you tell yourself about yourself that's negative. I'm an idiot. I'm ugly. I'm not smart. I'm not sexy. I'm fat. I'm whatever. Um, and it came with a warning. Don't let anybody ever read it because they'll take your shoelaces away. <laughs> right. And, and what's the reality is everybody's walking around with it. You're just the only one who bothered putting it on paper. Right. And so you go through every nook and cranny of your life and it's a process. It's not all going to happen at once, but you get as much out of the paper as you can. And then you go through and systematically forgive yourself for judging yourself as that and then create a new meaning around it. So I forgive myself for judging myself as I am overshadowed, right? Because most people don't know this. I never belonged on the Rush Club stage mentally. And I belonged on the Rush Club stage as the MC. So I'm overshadowed. I'm not good enough, whatever it was. The new truth is I am the light. Now, your brain, your subconscious hears, sees things in pictures, And so your subconscious is the crew, your conscious is the captain. So I'm going to audibly, through the process of auto-suggestion, this comes from Napoleon Hill's writings, Mm -hmm. through the form of auto-suggestion, I'm going to repeat out loud all of my... So you forgive yourself for everything and you put it into something that makes sense so that it becomes your mantra. It becomes your declaration. And then from there, I say that every single morning out loud so that my, my crew can hear it. Listen up, guys. I'm the captain. I'm telling you how we're going to be. And then I say it every night. So the first thing that happens in the morning when 95% of yesterday's thoughts try to creep in, I'm overriding it audibly with who I am. And then before I close my eyes and go to bed and start being influenced by my REM state, if I have any control over that, and I don't know a lot about the science there, but the last thing I'm going to do is not scroll through social media It's going to be saying my declaration again. I'm going to start my day and end my day with who I am, Mm -hmm. who I create me to be. Yes. Because the only reason I am who I am now is because of experiences of my life that nobody helped me clean up. Well, as soon as you realize you have power over that, it's up to you. And it's, you know, it's simple in description. It's not in execution. So when I learned this, I learned this process probably in 2016. And I learned it and then I didn't do it. I did a little bit and I didn't do it. And then when everything started going the way it did to the end of, towards the end of last year, I recommitted myself to it and my whole life has shifted around it. So mm-hmm. when I'm going bankrupt and everything's falling apart and I felt bad for myself for those two days and I said, I thought to myself, all the shit you've been reading and even all the shit you've spoken to others 
none of it matters unless you're willing to use it when you actually need to use it. Like it's all just BS. I mean, really, it's all just, these are all just words thrown out into ether. And until somebody actually applies it to the betterment of themselves or others, it doesn't matter. Napoleon Hill's books don't matter. Dr. Joseph Spenza doesn't matter. I mean, you name it, none of it matters until it gets applied by those hearing it. It's just stuff. And so I said, you bought, you bought into it. You even share it. So what are you going to do about it? And so then I said, okay, who am I going to show up as? And so I'm going to show up as that person I believe in. And so I did, I kept showing up that way. And next thing I know, I got a message. Uh, I reached, you know, which meant I had clarity for new opportunities. Mm-hmm. I wasn't wallowing in self-pity. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking. Well, Chris Powell had created this app called Transform. I got to coach Chris Powell on season three and four. I was the boot camp location. So I had a connection there. I knew him. I messaged him on Instagram. I said, hey, bro, you ever thought about white labeling your app so that guys like me can hire, can get clients and just use the app to coach him? And he goes, man, we're thinking about that. Blah, blah, you know. And I kept sending him these messages with ideas around his platform. And finally they said, why don't you come meet with us? Come talk to us. We might have a job for you. And I'm like, okay, great. And I just think about if the person I showed up as on social media or whatever, like boohoo, poor me, blah, blah, blah. I would have never had an, first of all, I wouldn't have seen it. I wouldn't have had the wherewithal to go look for it. And second of all, if I did, and they would have went and saw what I was up to, how I was showing up for people, I would have never had the opportunity. So it all came down to how I showed up in this negative time, right? Guys, I hope you've enjoyed part one of this interview with AJ. We're going to break it up when part two will be released next Wednesday. So be sure and tune in for that. And as always, if you are enjoying this content and pulling value from it, please like, share, comment, subscribe, help us grow this tribe, this Hardwater One group of individuals, those of us seeking mastery and excellence. Help us get the word out, guys. That's what we're all about at this point in our development. And if you have a story that you'd like to tell, something along the lines of mindset, wellness, health, something that you'd like to share that you feel is going to add value to the world, be sure and reach out to me personally on Facebook. That's Jason Archer or Instagram, or just shoot me an email at jason at hardwater.com and let's set something up and chat. Until then, guys, we'll see you in the next episode. Be sure and check your feed next Wednesday. Take care.